want to welcome everybody to Trinity Fellowship Church this morning. Uh, thank you all who are uh, watching on the live stream. Uh, glad that you're tuned in with us. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Open up to Mark chapter, I'm sorry, 14. Mark chapter 14. Um, finished up 13 last week. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And, you know, we're quickly approaching the climax or the culmination of Mark's gospel. You know, if Mark was uh, a roller coaster, you know, we would be at the point of the ride uh, where everyone would be getting extremely nervous uh, because we're close to the peak uh, and we're about to take a plummet. And uh, all of Mark's gospel has actually been leading uh, to this moment where Jesus will be betrayed. Uh, he will be abandoned by all. He will be falsely accused. He will be condemned to die on a Roman cross. And I want, to keep, I want you to keep in mind uh, that Mark's gospel has been moving at an incredibly fast pace. Uh, now, it's taken us some time to get through it. You know, we've been going through it pretty slow, but actually Mark's gospel moves rather quickly. And as you read the book, um, it almost feels as if Mark is sprinting through the details of Jesus' ministry. Uh, just kind of like he can't wait to get to, to this point that we're about to get at in Jesus' life. Chapters 1 through 10 in Mark's gospel are two years and 51 weeks worth of very fast-paced ministry. But these final chapters are only a single week, the final week of Jesus' life. So what happens is as we approach Calvary, time slows down. And this is done uh, purposely, and it's done theologically. It, it, it's done to emphasize that Jesus' death is integral to Jesus' mission, right? Jesus' death is essential in understanding his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one, speaking of Jesus, who was sent by God, who came to suffer and die as a ransom for sinners like you and me. So with that, let us go ahead and read uh, from Mark's gospel. Uh, this is one of the final episodes that occurred in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us this morning, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, uh, as a middle school teacher, I'm constantly talking to my kids and feel like I'm lecturing them all the time about life and uh, how, how, how different uh, they have it from kids in other countries. And I'm always just making these contrasts. Uh, but definitely, I make contrasts with them about their childhood and my childhood. So, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you didn't play video games online uh, while you were at your house with your friends. Uh, you went to a person's house and played video games in person as, as a group. Um, when I was a kid, uh, you, you had to uh, plan out your night. If you wanted to watch a television show, you had to be in front of the TV at 8 o'clock at a certain time. Uh, to see that show being aired. You couldn't just stream it, right? Uh, they have cell phones. We had land phones, phones that were hooked to the wall. You know, lo lots of contrasts, uh, stark contrasts. And I mention that because the idea of contrast is central to our passage today. Contrast. Mark highlights several significant contrasts in this passage today. His con he contrasts the cold-blooded plot to deceive and destroy Jesus with a white-hot passion and devotion for Jesus. And, and maybe you saw that as we read through the passage. And he does this to emphasize this incredibly beautiful and remarkable act of love from this woman. It's like kind of like when a jeweler puts um, a diamond on display. You, you know, when you see uh, diamonds on display, the backdrop is, is, is it's usually black, velvet, uh, you know, it, it, it's used to um, accentuate, uh, if that's even a word, it's used to highlight uh, the beauty of the diamond. Mark is actually doing something similar in this passage. He is contrasting these dramatically uh, different responses to Jesus. And in doing so, he is showcasing this stunning, um, beautiful sacrifice and remarkable act of worship. Uh, one of the features of Mark's gospel is he likes to create story sandwiches. And we've talked about that. doesn't sound very academic, uh, but, but that's what he does. He creates story sandwiches. And he will begin with a story, and he will interrupt uh, his first story with a second story. And once the second story is finished, he'll circle back around, and he will finish the story that he began with. He creates one sandwich um, he creates one sandwich with two stories. And this sandwich, you know, it's not just some literary feature that we should observe and say, oh, that, that's fascinating. It's actually uh, observing the, this, this story sandwich. It's actually crucial for interpreting the passage. So when you are reading Mark's gospel, you have to recognize when these sandwiches occur because these two stories, they interpret and they relate to one another. So that's, what's, that's what Mark is doing here in our passage today. The two pieces of bread on the outside described uh, the underhanded betrayal of Jesus. But, but the meat in the middle, the good stuff, uh, it describes this unparalleled act of devotion for Jesus or to Jesus. 
And this sandwich is designed to help us know how to properly respond to Jesus. And if you recall, Mark has, um, he has a, a two really big purposes that we've been looking at as we've been going through this gospel. You know, there's a big buzz going on in the Roman, in, in first century Rome, and it's who is this Jesus guy? Right, Jesus has um, gotten a name for himself. He's grown in his popularity. And Mark answers that question for us. He answers who Jesus is. And the second question uh, Mark answers is what does it look like to follow Jesus? So who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And this account answers both of these questions really well, but it focuses primarily on the latter. What's it look like to be a disciple? What's it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And so today we're going to look at that. Uh, we're going to see three contrasting responses to Jesus. Uh, we're going to see, and, I, and I've, heard, I've heard somebody say this before, but it fits really well with this passage. But I've actually heard this, I've read it in a book or something. It says, some people reject Jesus. So these are the three contrasting responses. Some people reject Jesus, some people use Jesus, and some people worship Jesus. All right. So some people reject Jesus, some people use Jesus, and some people worship Jesus. And every person, uh, everyone in this room right now, everyone in our community, everyone in the world uh, falls into one of these categories, no doubt. And not only do, do, do all of us fall into one of these uh, categories, but our life and our, and our afterlife will either um, experience benefits from one of these categories or consequences. Uh, from one of these categories, depending on which one you fall in. So let's dive in. Rejecting Jesus. Verse 1, uh, we are told that this event takes place a couple days uh, before the Passover. So this would be Wednesday of Passion Week. And during the Passover, uh, the population in Jerusalem, it would increase dramatically. Jews from all over the world uh, would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we'll talk more about that next week in our passage. Uh, but under normal circumstances, Jerusalem probably had a population of about 50,000 people. Uh, but during Passover, it would swell uh, from what I read up to about 250,000 people. And while these people are gathering to worship, the religious leaders are actually looking for a way to murder Jesus. And this is not just some spur-of-the-moment decision by the religious leaders. They've been trying to plot this for about the, the last two and a half years. You know, we're told way back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, after Jesus gets in a conflict with a religious leader, uh, we read that the Pharisees went out with the Herodians plotting together on how they might kill Jesus. And if you remember after Jesus cleansed the temple, uh, the chief priest and the scribes, uh, they got together saying they needed to arrest him, they needed to kill him. It's, it's been mentioned several times. So just not, it just, just didn't happen out of thin air. Now once again, verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes are looking for a way to arrest him and kill him. The religious leaders want to, um, they want to have power over Jesus. They want to control Jesus. They, the, the, the reason these religious leaders are rejecting Jesus is because they don't like him being on their turf. They want to remain in power, and they like to be in control. They want to hold on to the authority that they have obtained in their life. And Jesus, he's a threat to all of that. Uh, so in order to remove this threat, they decide to get rid of Jesus. 
uh, we're told the reason the religious leaders haven't acted immediately is because of uh, is because of fear. The Roman government looks down on and punishes severely anyone who is causing a riot. So Jesus is very popular with the crowds at this time. So if they do something public, they fear that the crowds will react and they will ultimately be punished. In other words, uh, the only thing preventing the religious leaders from going ahead and killing Jesus is the fear of the repercussions uh, that they would face. The only thing missing for them is the opportunity. So they decide to wait. Now, while these religious leaders uh, back then, they're dead and gone, uh, I do think that their spirit and their disposition is still very much present with us today. Many people reject Jesus today for similar reasons as the religious leaders. Some people reject Jesus because they don't want to hand over their power to him. Uh, in other words, their posture is, um, you know, I don't need a Lord. I I'm actually doing incredibly well um, being the Lord of my own life. You know, that's how some people would, would think. So, you know, I don't want to hand that job over to anyone else because I like to be in control. Um, I'm definitely not trying to listen to uh, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. So instead of worshiping Jesus, these people would worship personal autonomy, uh, their desire for, for independence and control and elbow room becomes the barrier uh, to their own salvation. And I wonder, you know, this morning, is, is, is any of us in here uh, falling into that category? Uh, some people uh, reject Jesus because of their self-righteousness. So they're not really saying that they don't need a Lord, uh, but they are saying, you know, I don't really need a Savior. Um, so what keeps many people from salvation is not like this big, bad, awful, popular sin, drugs, alcohol, robbing banks, you know, killing people. It's, uh, it's just this sin of, of self-righteousness. You know, like, I'm, I'm just not that bad of a person. Um, you know, I don't really see the need for that. I mean, yeah, I do. You know, I mess up here and there. I make mistakes, but so does, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I'm not really that bad. And I like what Ed Welch says. He says, the gospel is that Christ died for sinners, and then he rose from the dead. It's good news for people who sin and are sinners. It's good news for desperate people. It's not good news for people who occasionally do bad things. So are you a desperate sinner? If you're not desperate, then the gospel's not good news. Have you rejected Jesus uh, for these reasons? Do you see yourself as a nice person who occasionally does a wrong thing or two? The gospel will never be good news to you unless you first acknowledge that you are a desperate sinner in need of a Savior. And, and if we're honest, uh, we, aren't being, we aren't good at being Lord over our lives as well. And this is what really convinced me to become a Christian is, um, you know, when I'm in charge, uh, my whole life is in ruins. Uh, so, so that's the first response, uh, rejecting Jesus. Here's the second uh, response, using Jesus. Some people reject Jesus, others use him. So the religious leaders decide to wait until after the Passover to kill him, but their plans change when Judas approaches them and proposes to help them. Think of one of the most troubling parts of this account is that uh, Judas 
uh, is the one who initiated this conversation. That, 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 that's what troubles me uh, the most, not the religious leaders. He decided to confront them, and, and it's not the other way around. And what, what makes Judas different from them is that Mark tells us in verse 10, if you see, that Judas was one of the 12. He was one of the 12. He was personally involved in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he performed miracles in Jesus' name. He healed people. He casted out demons. Um, he had conversations with Jesus. He laughed at Jesus' jokes. He knew Jesus, but he didn't know him in a saving way. Uh, so one of the things this teaches us is that having a close proximity with Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. You can participate in all kinds of Jesus activities and not know him as, save, as Savior. You can uh, attend church. Uh, you can uh, attend Bible studies, go on mission trips even. All good things that, that, that Christians should participate in. Uh, but if you do not repent, if you do not turn away from sin, from self, from self-righteousness, uh, and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, then you do not know Jesus. Being close to Jesus in activities is not the same thing as being united to Jesus by faith. And Judas is an example of that. There are a lot of interesting theories as to why, Jesus, why Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, but in my opinion, that's all they are. They're just interesting. Uh, scripture tells us that Judas was motivated, at least to some degree, by money. Uh, the, in the Gospel of John, John tells us Judas was the treasurer, um, the treasurer of the group, and he would help himself uh, to some of the money uh, in their joint bank account. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us the amount Judas got to betray Jesus said it was uh, 30 pieces of silver, uh, which may, kind, may sound like a lot. Um, but what's even more interesting is that at that time, 30 pieces of silver was actually the minimum price to purchase the lowliest of slaves. So if a slave was accidentally killed, the person who was responsible had to pay 30 pieces of silver. And you can read about that in uh, Exodus chapter 21. So according to Judas, uh, Jesus um, wasn't an infinitely valuable treasure. He was only worth the price of a lowly slave. Um, he exchanged the greatest gift in the world for a few months' pay. So here's how we apply this. There is a tendency to turn Jesus into a means to an end rather than to an end itself. Um, in other words, there is a tendency for some people not to view Jesus as infinitely valuable, but they view Jesus as a way to get things that are temporarily valuable. Come to Jesus and you will... Fill, get fill in the blank, right? Come to Jesus and you will have an easy life. Come to Jesus and you will get a new job. Uh, come to Jesus and you will get married. Come to Jesus and, and you will be healthy. Uh, the, the, that's not Christianity. That's the religion of Judas. Um, and, and Augustine makes this point. He, in talking about this passage, Augustine was talking about how um, a woman shouldn't love her engagement ring more than the man uh, that she's marrying, 
right? And I tell people this in premarital counseling, you know, the, the, wedding, the wedding is just the beginning, right? Um, so some people, they go in debt over their wedding, and then they get divorced five years later, and that's not how it should be, right? Uh, you got the rest of your life. Um, when you enter into that marriage. Don't get caught up, you know, over the, the superficial things. Don't turn Jesus into a means to an end because he is the end, right? He's the beginning and the end, right? Do not turn his gifts into your source of joy uh, because that's not the gospel. And what that actually is, it's actually idolatry. Uh, Jesus is the gift. Third response, okay? So we've seen rejecting Jesus, using Jesus, now we're going to look at worship Jesus. Some reject Jesus, some use Jesus, others worship Jesus. They worship who he is and what he has done. Mark uh, spills most of his ink on this last point. Uh, and it reminded me of a story uh, I read a few years ago. This guy, he, uh, him and his buddy, he had a plan. His girlfriend broke up with him. So he went to his buddy and he said, here's how I'm going to get my girlfriend back. So he, him and his buddy, they go to a park, and his buddy was going to shoot him a couple times, uh, was going to, uh, you know, hurt him, um, but not kill him, but, but, but injure him uh, significantly. He would go into the hospital, and then his girlfriend would feel bad for him. She would come back, see him, and then take him back uh, after she, you know, felt, felt bad for him. And that's what he thought. That was his plan. Uh, his buddy actually... Uh, only agreed to shoot him once in the arm. Um, but, but, but ultimately what happened is, is, yes, he did go to the hospital, but he also got charges uh, filed against him. Uh, and he got in a lot of trouble. And what, what I took away from the story was the, the prosecuting attorney uh, in the case, he said, this has to be the most phenomenally stupid case I have ever seen. Uh, because the guy didn't get his girlfriend back, right? He committed a crime. All he did was get a bullet in his arm, and now he's got a record, uh, right? And, and I think this story proves a point. People will do outlandish things for those that they love. Uh, they'll do outlandish things for those that they love. And in verses 3 through 9 uh, in, in, in this passage, we see another outlandish thing, but it's not stupid. It's devotional. Right? It's appropriate. It's the kind of love that a forgiven sinner has for her merciful Savior. This woman is put forth as a model for us for devotion and discipleship. Uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't follow the, the man in the parks example, right? Uh, but we, we should follow this woman's example. Jesus gives his approval of her for us. Uh, verse 3 tells us about this woman's act of devotion. She had an alabaster jar full of very expensive perfume. And it talks about pure nard there, which could only be purchased in Southeast Asia at the time. So it was very hard to get. Uh, the passage tells us that the ointment was worth over 300 denarii, uh, which would have been about an entire year's salary. Uh, that, that's what this, anoint, that's what this um, ointment was worth. And keep in mind uh, that women in that time, for the most part, uh, could, not per could not pursue uh, the type of career that would enable them to purchase such an expensive and lavish gift such as this. It's possible that this could have been a family heirloom, right? So maybe it was handed down, passed on generation from generation. <clears throat> but um, 
you know, not only does this, this if that's the case, and, and the passage doesn't say that, but if that's the case, then this gift not only has a significant monetary value, uh, but it also has a tremendous sentimental value as well. Uh, so this woman, you know, she just doesn't pour a couple squirts onto Jesus, you know, like you're at the mall and they walk by you and spray a little bit on your wrist, see if you like the smell of it. Uh, she broke the neck of the alabaster jar. Uh, which means, you know, there's no turning back, right? It's all going to come out. She's not going to be able to use this perfume ever again. She pours it all out for Jesus. So the breaking of the alabaster jar is communicating that there's no turning back. In verses 4 and 5, the disciples respond to her outlandish act of love, and, and, and they classify it as kind of like what the, the prosecuting attorney said to the guy in the park, that they're looking at her like, you know, that's a phenomenally stupid thing that she's just done, pouring out all of this ointment that costs so much money. Verse 4 says they were um, indignant, right? Verse 5, if you look, it says they scolded her. You know, they're not just annoyed. They're not just confused. They're actually angry. Uh, in verses 6 through 9, Jesus responds, and he interprets this woman's actions for them. Uh, this woman's extreme outlandish act provokes uh, two different responses. It provokes criticism from the disciples, accommodation from Jesus. And verse 6 is one of my, one of my favorite, favorite verses in the whole Bible, actually. Uh, look what it says. It says, Jesus said, but Jesus said, leave her alone. And I, I just, I think about what it would have been like to hear him say that, like, this is her Lord coming to her rescue. Like, who are y'all? Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And that's just, man, that, that like I said, I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, his voice and his demeanor and his mannerism in that moment. It must have made her feel so um, comforted and loved and, and protected, right? Um, she has done a good thing. She has done a beautiful thing. Uh, this is the verse where the contrast really comes into focus for us. This woman, she's treating Jesus like he's royalty, but Judas treats Jesus like he's a slave. Her actions were beautiful. Judas's actions were despicable. Her actions uh, were, was an act of loyalty. Um, Judas's actions were an act of betrayal. She sacrificed her most prized possession for Jesus. Judas sacrificed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And one pastor said, and I like this, one pastor said, uh, Judas gave up Jesus for money. This woman gave up money for Jesus. See the contrast? This woman's act of devotion uh, was so beautiful that Jesus issued a very unique promise to her uh, did you catch that in verse 9? Look at verse 9. It says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And we've been looking at the last few weeks how Jesus' words never fail. Remember, he predicted the destruction of the temple, and that actually happened. We can know that what Jesus says actually does happen all the time. Uh, every time he says something, it always comes to pass. And, and this prediction has come to fruition as well, right? And when we're proof of that. We are currently fulfilling this unique promise. What she has done for Jesus is being told in her memory right now. And, and, and that's pretty cool. You know, a lot of people out here talking about prophecies, you know, uh, coronavirus, the end of the world. This is a prophecy fulfilled right here. Jesus said that, that this will be done and told in memory of her. And here we are 
uh, chopping it up right now. Uh, so here is my question for us. Are we responding to Jesus like this woman? In light of who he is and what he's done, are we responding to Jesus like this woman? Or is something in your life or maybe in your heart competing with Jesus as being most valuable? And if we're all honest, I think we could all say, yeah, uh, there are things competing for in my heart and in my life um, for Jesus. So how do we remedy that? How do, how do we change that if there's something that's that's fighting for our desires, uh, how, how do we change it? I think it's absolutely necessary to point out that this woman's act was a response to Jesus' love. Uh, it was not an attempt to earn his love, right? This is the contrast to the guy in the park. Remember the guy in the park? He, he had his friends shoot him in the arm uh, so that he could earn his, his ex-girlfriend's love. His act, um, his act of love was an attempt to recover a severed relationship. But this woman's act of love was in response to Jesus' love in recovering her relationship with God. Right? Her beautiful sacrifice is the result of her beholding her beautiful Savior. So the answer uh, to imitating her is to look at what she looked at, to focus on what she focused on. Um, we don't just want to study her sacrifice. Godly commentaries were, are filled with this ointment and what it meant and all that. Uh, but what we want to study is, is what motivated her uh, sacrifice. And, and what motivated her sacrifice? It was Jesus. So I just want to look at a few things from this text. Um, on why Jesus is worthy of our worship and devotion. And, and, and we'll wrap things up. The first reason is he defends his people. Jesus defended this woman when she was belittled and attacked by others. And this isn't unusual of Jesus. Uh, this is typical behavior of our king. He does this for all of his people. And this is the job of a king. Um, think about Saul and David. Right? Saul was supposed to be the one that would uh, defeat Goliath and take down Goliath uh, for his people. But David, the anointed king, is the one who had to come in and do it. And Jesus does that for us. Not only does he defeat uh, our greatest enemies, which are Satan, sin, and the grave, uh, he also defends us when others misunderstand us. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Second reason to worship Jesus, he is unlike his people. He defends them, but he is not like them. He, he, he defends us, but he's not like us. He is utterly unique. Um, what, what about this, this verse right here? For you always, what's these, I think it's verse 8, says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus, he cares for the poor. Uh, you know, don't, don't get that confused. We should care for the poor. Trinity Fellowship Church should care for the poor. Uh, verse 7 is really a correct estimation of his uniqueness. Jesus has already affirmed uh, the two greatest commandments in this gospel. He said that we should love God first and we should love our neighbor second. He is just reaffirming this truth right here. Yes, um, love your neighbor, but first love Jesus. And why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is unlike us. We are weak. Uh, just as our confession said this morning, we are sinners. Jesus is eternal. Uh, Jesus is strong. Jesus is holy. Third reason to worship Jesus, he sacrifices for his people. 
Jesus is never not teaching. That's that's what he does here. He provides theological significance uh, to her actions, this woman's actions. She may not know uh, what she is doing entirely, but he does. Verse 8, Jesus says, she has anointed my body for burial. In a couple days, Jesus is going to die. And the way in which he will die will be gruesome. Um, He was sold for a slave's wage, and he will die a slave's death. And there will not be enough time to prepare his body for the grave. So this woman is getting his body um, ready for that day. But the reason Jesus died is to save his people. Uh, The reason Jesus died is to save us and rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. And when we're singing our response song uh, here in a few minutes and when we're taking the Lord's Supper, uh, let's focus on that. Don't focus on your sin. Don't focus on, because I think that's our tendency is when we, you know, we take the Lord's Supper, we want to you know, ask for forgiveness, and all that's good. Uh, but don't focus on the, the, the big sins you had this week. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his body being broken for you. Focus on his blood being spilled for you. Focus on his gracious character and his unparalleled sacrifice for you, remembering um, that forgiveness is as real as the bread and the cup that you are holding in your hands because of what Jesus did for you. That, 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 that's the command. Do this in remembrance of me, uh, not in remembrance of all the sins that you got going on in your life, not reflect on how awful of a person you are. Um, reflect on his blood that was shed for you to secure your salvation. Fourth reason to worship Jesus, he sends his people. He not only saves his people, he calls us to mission, right? He doesn't want any of us on the sidelines. Uh, Verse 9, it says, he wants us proclaiming the good news. And this is the last time we'll hear Jesus say the word gospel. Uh, So from this point on, he has entrusted us with proclaiming it. Trinity Fellowship Church, that's what our duty is. That's what our job is. Uh, We take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus defends his people. Jesus sacrifices for his people. He saves his people, and he sends his people. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. God, we we do thank you for today's passage and the example of devotion and discipleship uh, that we see in it. Uh, We also thank you for the warning of how we could um, wrongly respond to you. Uh, I pray that uh, as we respond in in singing and by taking the Lord's Supper, um, that that we're not rejecting you, uh, that we're not using you, Uh, but that we are genuinely worshiping you. And I pray that that by your spirit you would uh, create that worship in our hearts and in our minds and that it would would be demonstrated uh, in our lives here at Trinity Fellowship Church. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.